Okay. So we're, we're uh, we we had three good weeks, sort of traveling throughout the cosmos with our brothers, and uh, we're going to get back to the parables for a bit. And um, back to earth. Back to earth. <laughs> That's right. Back to earth. Back to where uh, we have living, breathing humans, um, wanting to walk in the way everlasting. Right. Mm. So we're going to be in uh, Luke this morning. And chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, in the so-called parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And let's pray. Our Father, thank you for our time together this morning, for for the opportunity to slow down and consider your word in community and to let the word guide us and to let let understanding between us um, edify and build us up. Also, correct any errors in our thinking. Help us to know you correctly that we may also believe correctly. Father, we're mindful of the need for the love of God in our world, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And we pray that you would, through your people, even through your government, Lord, um, that our government would perhaps somehow become a place where better examples can be set, where people can genuinely be concerned for community and not self that we may avoid some of the ongoing things we continue to see amongst our lost neighbors, particularly down south this weekend. We pray that none in your church, Lord, would ever, ever think that there's any benefit to being in one particular race or creed over another. If so, to be open to the correction of the Scripture. Ask you, Lord, to help us see Jesus in your word this morning. Amen. All right. Luke what? Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. The prodigal son. In some ways, it should be called the prodigal sons. Perhaps we'll see that as we get more towards the end. 15, 11 to 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your 
property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Hopefully I have some surprising things for you in this parable, because I think, by and large, this parable has been improperly taught and improperly understood, probably, uh, from much of our church experience. I don't think it's nearly as simple as it appears to be on its face. I think there are things in here, you know, I often wonder, you know, we just received an email from the Leos right down in Haiti. And they're there to minister the gospel. And in a way, they're sort of preparing the way of the Lord in as much as they're doing some of the first things they can do, and that's get people healthy, get people food, get them educated, get them, uh, get them so that they can begin to even hear things about the gospel. And then, of course, to do things consistent with the, pre- with the preaching and the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead. <clears throat> and so, doing reconciles humankind, lost humankind to God. And so, the goal from the mission standpoint was to have them down there a good long time so that they would become immersed in the culture and become acculturated so that they could express the gospel in culturally relevant ways so that they wouldn't just go down there and say white Christian things in a setting where some of the things that just, just, just don't make a whole lot of sense. So there's a lot of confusion that can come about from some of the things that go on with that. And so if we're wise enough and savvy enough to know that you don't just walk into a culture like that and just bring your sort of northeast, particularly Massachusetts version of Christianity as it's been expressed and experienced uh, in a certain way, then are we not a text approach the biblical text in such a way that says we better find out something about the culture these parables are told in? Because I think sometimes we act as if the parable is being told to our culture and it's not. This parable, by and large, should be completely foreign to it. So if you've read it for the first time or I've only read it in a couple of times and it doesn't make a lot of sense, it shouldn't make a lot of sense until you have some understanding of what's going on in the culture and what these things mean in the way that they're being told. And unfortunately, we have the habit of taking some of these things in Scripture because we may not be as diligent as we could be or because we could even do with one's theology for that matter. Sometimes we bring our theology to a parable ahead of time and we turn the parable into something it's not. And this has happened with this parable as well. I think, I think that good case can be made for that as we go through it. So we'll see some wonderful... And I say all that just to say it's even more wonderful than you first have thought. <coughs> this parable is more deep and more wonderful in deeper ways and more profound ways than perhaps we've thought, or perhaps you have thought. Um, first of all, why don't we... Uh, what, what's the word prodigal mean? I mean, obviously it doesn't appear in the text anywhere. If we want to take a shot at that, what does prodigal mean without Googling it? Anybody know? I mean, you know, think about the story. What, what do you suppose the word prodigal means? A son that gave his father a hard time. No, he did certainly do that, but that is not that is not the definition of prodigal. In context, would it be like wayward, a wayward son? No, that's not even either. The word prodigal means reckless, wasteful spending. Reckless, wasteful spending. And so, oftentimes, again, we take this parable and we say of someone that's come back, you know, a, a son or a daughter, or you know, the prodigal son has returned, or the prodigal daughter has returned, and we just say it in a way that, just because I know it gives us uh, familiarity with the story. But prodigal actually just means reckless and wasteful spending, which comes up a couple of times in the text. And, actually, it's probably good that we understand it that way when we understand just exactly what it is that the son has done and what makes it so wicked. Uh, If we're going to really understand this and not get confused and bring things to the parable that don't belong there, we need to understand why the parable is told in the first place, first of all. And second of all, the two parables that precede it these are a collection of three parables that go together. And they all are repeating some of the same things, except by the time you get to the third parable, it's just much more in-depth. It's almost as if Jesus told the first two parables to sort of get the, the Pharisees and the people's mindset in the right place before he piled on what he does here in the third parable. So these three parables have to be understood as being told at the same time, 
to the same audience with the same purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, as I've mentioned before, oftentimes Jesus told a parable in response to some boneheaded thing that the Pharisees said. Because the Pharisees were always opening up their mouths and demonstrating uh, their hatred of anyone that was not Jewish, their hatred of anyone that was not trained in Scripture, their hatred of anyone that didn't walk like them, think like them, strain gnats out of drinks like them, wash hands like them, you know. And so, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 15, we read, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that being Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners are all coming around Jesus. That should tell us, first of all, what kind of a man Jesus must have been. Yes, darling. Excuse me for interrupting, but let's back up. Reckless spending, is that just money? or? or yeah, it's spe- specifically money-wise, money. yeah. Okay. Yeah, just reckless spending of yeah, money. All right. Does that prodigal apply to a wife? I don't know that it would or not. Uh, I don't know. I only know that in such a case... I, I only know that in such a case, the scripture would say, husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church. <laughs> if you have a prodigal wife, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. <laughs> and remember... Yeah. I'm sorry. No, you didn't... Listen, listen, Brother Todd has the ability to step in it with nothing else around. He's, it's, a, it's a gift. And Joyce Lynn, we love you so much. We do. Long suffering. You know that word long suffering came from, right? So, uh, so we go up to this verse and we see that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners did not draw near to the Pharisees because the Pharisees made a way of letting them know you are entirely unwelcome here. Okay? So, first of all, that tells us something about Jesus. And it's something that greatly agitated the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. This verse, uh, verse 2, has been such a blessing to me. Uh, I remember uh, on my trip to Haiti years ago, uh, just, just reading through Luke on the plane and I read this verse and it just stopped me, you know? Because it just really sums up who Jesus is and who I am and who you are. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Okay, so they see tax collectors, they see prostitutes, they see sinners, Gentiles, non-Jewish people coming around Jesus. And they grumble to one another. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the best news that you're going to hear today. This is the best news you're going to hear today. Whatever great news you could hear today, if you, if you, if you, and I, I, I don't know what else, you're waiting to hear about a great job, and you might hear today you got it. You might have taken a pregnancy test, and you're waiting to hear back that you're pregnant. This is better news than that. This is the best news you're going to have all day. This is the best news you're going to have your whole life. That Jesus Christ, this man, receives sinners and eats with them. Because we have to understand what that means, too. Alright? Uh, in the Middle East, fellowship around the table was everything. And the great hope and expectation of the Messianic banquet was sitting down with Abraham at this big feast before God in the Messianic kingdom to come. This man received sinners and eats with them. Pharisees, righteous, proper Jews, certainly didn't eat with Gentiles. And they certainly didn't eat with sinners. I mean, you defile yourself, right? And Jesus had to address this idiocy in a lot of ways. It is just sort of Old Testament legalism is what it is. Okay? It, it would be like, I don't know, it's hard to find a comparison in our day because fortunately we, a lot of us, I think, maybe might have been exposed to some sort of really grotesque, you know, um, theology, be it either in fundamental, fundamental independent Baptist circles, some of them, or even in some Assembly of God type circles where legalism abounds. Okay, where you, if you don't dress a certain way, you're not holy. Okay, you're not nearly as holy. If you don't wear a tie, you know, you walk around with sandals, I mean, or something like that, and you know, you, you, you're cursed. You know, I mean, you're just, you're a lower form of life. Literally, this is the way that they think. So, it's hard to come up with an example in a good, healthy church like, like ours that the Lord has blessed us in. So, 
Um, but suffice it to say, you can you can hear the disdain for these people. Just imagine them just sort of whispering to each other. You know? This guy you see sinners in each of them. Yeah. And he calls himself holy. Yeah, what a jerk. What an unclean thing he is, you know. So in response to that, Jesus gives a parable. Uh, because he wants to address you know, if, if you were outside the community again of, 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 of the, Jew, the Jews, you were a lawbreaker. You were just no good. Um, why are they so disgusted at Jesus? I mean, the Pharisees, in a certain sense, are, are really terrible theologians, aren't they? They really are poor theologians. What do the Pharisees and scribes have available to them? And the word that they had, even in the Pentateuch, the first five books, what do they have available to them that ought to give them a bit of sense of the thinking this way? Okay, so they, they might be able to certain rely, uh, depend upon certain things. Circumcision was required. This was required. That was required. But is there anything that the Pharisees and scribes had available to them that would let them know that this is not the attitude that you should have towards others? How about love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're just a Pharisee and you're just doing what's right in in the religious setting, what do you need God's steadfast love for and loving kindness? You're already you're already there, right? And of course, that was the Jews' problem in the first place, the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought simply because they had, um, simply because they had the law. That God thought them as special. It's just like, just because you go to church and you're not a Christian. I read a quote this week that said something like, going to church doesn't make you any more a Christian than going into a garage makes you a car. Right? Mm-hmm. I said, hey, that's a pretty good quote. We're not Christians just because we go to church and do Christian things. Or go to Christian camps. Or do Christian overnights. Or, you know, Christian small... Those things don't make you a Christian. They might make you fuller. Or help you to become more full and complete as a Christian. Yes. And didn't they base their uh, self-righteousness on their lineage? Definitely. They could trace back all the way to the prophets. And yeah. The earlier in the well, and the funny thing is they would say we have Abraham as our father and Abraham wasn't a Jew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Abraham was a Gentile. Okay? So, I mean, yeah, he was the father of the circumcision, but Abraham was not a Jew. I mean, he sort of... I guess became the father of the people that became the Jews. But he came from Ur of the Chaldees. Okay. Um, and I think that it's important that Jesus sets this parable up in a way that, this, this, that, 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 that the Pharisees can really be disgusted. Jesus has a way in his parables of really putting them in touch with their own emotions the ones they might be trying to hide in order to look self-righteous. Parables are so powerful, the way Jesus told them, that they could expose things that we try so carefully to hide. Okay. So, after he says this, after he, after he knows that the Pharisees are grumbling, this man receives sinners and eats with them, he told them two parables. It says here, so he told them this parable. <laughs> he told them this parable because... And he goes on to talk about the man having a hundred sheep. Uh, if he loses one, he goes out and he finds him. Okay? And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and they rejoice, saying, Rejoice with me. I've lost my sheep. I found my sheep that was lost. And then that there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than there are over ninety-nine righteous. And then he goes on to tell another short parable. Or, what woman... Okay, so he's... Jesus is reaching everyone here, right? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and says, Rejoice with me, I found the coin that I had lost. I lost my husband's credit card. I lost my own credit card. Just so I tell you this joy... So, so what's going on here? Right? What's going on here? It's, and we're going to get into it. But I think that 
Jesus told these again these two parables to help us understand the third one in particular. But the point that has often been lost in the way that we may be accustomed to hearing or thinking of the prodigal is affected here, and in two different ways, and possibly three, I think, even as we go through and see. I think these two shorter parables can help us understand things about the third parable that we would otherwise miss if we only read the third parable and don't know why Jesus told the first and second parable to begin with. Okay? Jesus was a very methodical teacher and preacher. He was a, he was a teacher par excellence, Jesus was. It's tremendous. Well, he, that only makes sense. And no doubt the wisest man who ever lived. So, <clears throat> the parable itself then. And he said, and he said, there was a young man who had two sons. So he's sort of touching everybody with this. He's got, he's got a woman. He's got the man. He's got young sons here. He's just teaching this whole community. There's so much in here for everyone. And he said, there was a young man who had two, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So, what he basically said to his father was, Dad, please die. Okay? This young man said to his father, Dad, please die. He might just as well have said that because his opinion of his father was so low. And this is, again, where it's so important to understand. We might consider this disrespectful today in some way if... We were someone to go and say, Hey, Dad, give me the money that I had saved up for college. I'm not going to college. I'm out of here. You know, that would certainly be disrespectful enough. And the Jewish community, in the religious milieu that these uh, people were brought up in, that they came to know, this was basically a hope that the father would die. Because the law, the Jewish law did give provision for inheritance to be divided while the father was alive, but it was never to be sold until after the father died. Okay? So this kid wanted his father... He he had written him off. He had basically written off his father. I want what's mine, even if that means you have to die. It's a good example of self-centeredness in the extreme. This is where self-centeredness takes all of us. I read a quote yesterday. One of my old professors from uh, uh, a master's program at Biola tweeted out, Every one of us is born capable of Auschwitz. What a great quote. Every one of us is born capable of Auschwitz. Does anyone know what Auschwitz is? Does anyone not know? So Auschwitz was one of the camps that the Germans um, murdered. Just you know, They had, well, at the end of the day, six million, but Auschwitz was one of the camps, one of the horrible camps, where they led Jews into these chambers and gassed them and put them to death. Uh, and I think if you go there today you can see massive collections of the human hair that they kept because they used the human hair for various things that they shaved off the people before they sent them in and the, the, the chambers that they lived in and the quarters that they lived in so and so he was making that what's the point in that? what's he saying when he says that? every one of us is born capable of Auschwitz and why do I bring it up here? human depravity other than because I'm weird huh? human depravity yeah yeah Ooh. yeah our, our depravity and, and I, I think Jesus really wants them, and he certainly wants the Pharisees to understand depravity, certainly in ways that they don't, because they don't see themselves as it. Okay? In fact, the entire religious community would be disgusted with this. Okay? So Jesus is getting people in touch with the Pharisees' disgust. Okay? With, for both the Gentile and the Jewish disregard for God as Father. Okay? Because in a certain sense... In a very general sense, God is the father of all, in a sense. Uh, Paul talks about us all being his offspring when he speaks you know, to the crowd at Ephesus, right? He says we are all his offspring, as even one of your own poets have said, right? So in that sense, we are all gods. We're not all gods. And yet there has to be yet another way that he's our father because the scripture says he gives us the spirit of adoption. So if, we're already, if he's already our father, then why do we need to be adopted? Because the reality is that He's not our father in the spiritual sense if, until we're in Christ. Okay? And that's why we have a, that language of adoption. Because as it says in First John, there are children of the devil. That's right. So yes. the, the distinction is certainly yes. there. That's right. And, and children of, of, of the king, the children of God that become children of God, have been adopted yes. out of the devil's family. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Amen. So... <clears throat> Uh, and again, that word prodigal here, 
where we get from not many days later, the young son gathered all he had, took a journey, and he squandered his property in reckless living. So, Darlene, that speaks a little more directly to your question. He squandered what he had in reckless living. Just riotous, reckless living. And, you know, we can sort of imagine what some of that living might have been. Just spending money on, you know, again, what was... There's not a whole lot that's changed about the human heart. We just have different ways of expressing it. I mean, the human heart is disgusting uh, from our birth, uh, although not as nearly as depraved as it could be. You know, it's funny. A little sidebar: we often use this verse. The heart is, is desperately weak, wicked and deceitful above all things. I don't think I think that we overuse that verse way too much, because there are a lot of verses in the Old Testament that talk about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all kinds of things that talk about the heart in Scripture. And there's a very specific nuance in Jeremiah where that's used, speaking of a very specific people. So, don't have time to get in that. But I just think for Christians to say the heart is desperately wicked above all things, who can know it? I just don't think that applies anymore. I really don't. In fact, I don't even think it applies entirely to unbelievers because they're not nearly as wicked as they could be. They're entirely wicked, but they're not so wicked as they potentially could be. Um, anyway, that's just something for you to look up on your side. See, I'm going to look up what Pat said. Um, I just think that's a verse that gets overused and we I don't think we think carefully when we use that verse as we should. Because if the heart is desperately wicked above all things, who can know it? Then how can we even begin to do anything? Especially if we're going to say that about Christians. How can we say about a Christian the heart is desperately wicked above all things, who can know it? When God has poured out the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we're united to God, the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. We can't. So don't ever do it again. As a Christian, yeah, I think so. But I, I, even in the, right, and in, and in the Old Testament, I think that so, like Jesus, uh, like David would, would 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 talk about things about God's heart, we could, uh, God's law, and how David's heart was for God. The Scripture says David was a man after God's own heart. You know, so I think it's a little bit dangerous for to use that verse as often as we do. Could, yes. Could it be said that? Uh, uh, some people's hearts are exceptionally wicked, and that's generally not the case. But it, you can, it can you can go there. Sure, of course Obviously, you can. Some people yes. that were running Auschwitz yes. were there. Yes, and it would be. Yeah. So, so obviously, if it's not for believers, it, it would be the natural sort of condition of man. But in that particular, you, you see, God could never hold us accountable in any way if that were just entirely true, a hundred percent of of our entire being all the time. God holds us accountable for a certain things, uh, for choices that we make. Wicked as we are, people still know how to love themselves. They still know how to love others as self. They may not do it, which makes it sin in the first place. But anyway, it just, I know it's an interesting discussion. We could probably have the have the have the team up here and get you know more deeply into We're that. We're gonna go with that one for a while later on. Yeah, good, good. So um, yeah, I just don't, I just don't think. Uh, that wasn't even my own thought. You know, I had read that somewhere and I, and I began to think about it quite a bit myself. And uh, maybe it would be helpful to get the many verses in the Old Testament that talks about how the heart functions in a lot of ways that is used and commanded and all that kind of thing. And we can't just whitewash this. Oh, yeah, but we can't do any of that because the heart is desperately wicked and desperate above all things. No, it, it, that's too simple. It's too simplified. It really is. But the ultimate is that uh, God says, I will circumcise your heart. Yes. The heart of your seed to right. love the Lord your God. Right. So, right. And, to the, and, and again, to the people. Uh, so that would make a lot of sense, especially to Old Testament people. It would mean nothing to most Gentiles today. But also today. to Romans uh, chapter 2. Mm-hmm. I mean, and actually Romans yep. chapter 3. The idea that there's still light mm-hmm. as the image, the remnants of God's image-bearing right. characteristics within man. Yep. That is enough light to shine in a very dark That's place right. of the human heart. That's right. Because the scripture says the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. Jesus says if you being evil know how to give good gifts. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there are examples where evil yep. people, which yep. is what we are, That's right. can actually display That's right. goodness. That's right. Well, even, even, Cornel- even not uh, Cornelius, but um, yeah, Cornelius, who Peter went to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, the angel came and said, your alms and prayers have come before God as a memorial. Interesting text. Cornelius was not saved at that point. <laughs> not, not to turn around in the other direction and make it sound like a contradiction, but, uh, you know, uh, why do you call me good? Who is good? No <laughs> one is good. Right. Yeah, that's a deep, deep so, verse too, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. you gotta, yeah. You got to really know the, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the verses around it, the yeah. context. Yeah, you do. 
you got to think in terms of the whole of Scripture. Good, good conversation. Uh, I deliberately wanted to offer a little bit of a rabbit trail there because I think it helps us to understand that, you know, the Jews can understand in this setting how disgusting this young man was. And he is disgusting. This kid's disgusting. All right? Which we'll get, in, we'll, we'll get into that some more. Uh, verse 14. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose, arose in that country and he began to be in need. Why is this such an important verse? What, what, talk about, let's talk about this verse for a minute. Yes. It just occurs to me that this young man may not have been the only one in view, but God does things sometimes in a very large fashion to bring about his plan. Mm-hmm. He, he brought about a famine mm-hmm. in that area mm-hmm. and it affected this kid. Yep. Uh, and so to me, to me, it's like you know, what did God have to do to put him in a position of really he was put up against the wall? Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that angle. Just the whole God sovereignty thing, orchestrating the circumstances, you know, decreeing that certain things come to pass. So, but that's a very important angle, of course. Yes, Tony. I think part of that is that you know, showing his selfishness and that at the very time when his family could have needed him the most. Mm-hmm. He's uh, you know, running off with uh, all his inheritance mm-hmm. and spending it all mm-hmm. on himself mm-hmm. instead of staying home and, and working mm-hmm. and helping to support yeah. the family. So any of us, so think of, of anyone that's willing to sort of talk about this. Uh, I, I know some of you, I know some of you past more than I know others, and I can certainly talk about my own. But in what ways did I take what I had, the gifts that I had, the abilities that I had as a young man, in what way did I take those things and just say, I'm just going to use these things sort of for very selfish reasons, okay, <clears throat> to do my own thing and what that ends up looking like, okay? And every one of you has been in that place as well, where you're God-given gifts and abilities. Just even something so simple as your ability to have relationships with other people. This is a gift from God so that we can know what it is to be created in His image. This is so that we can know what God is like. You can have relationships with each other. We can have relationships with each other in, a, in part so that we can know what God is like. Because God is, by definition, a relational being. Father, Son, and Spirit have been in relation with one another forever. So, even that we misuse and abuse for our own selves, right? Um, we can misuse other people. Something as simple as misusing other people. I was thinking of this recently over something. Just how dangerous... And what a manifestation of sickness there is in the soul when you see the number of and depravity of some of the selfies that are out there on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, I'm not to pick on women. Women do this more. They'll make this provocative. They'll fix their hair up, look just so, and look as good as they can look, and then take a selfie. For what reason? Why? Get honest. Why do people put selfies like that on on Facebook. Must be for validation. Yeah, for validation, exactly, right? For validation, and and you know that's the, we we all want some validation. We all want to know that we're accepted, right? And that we're. But you read the comments after. Whoa, you look great! Wow, smoking hot! Wow, and the look that they give is it's not just a picture of hey, it's just like this provocative look, <laughs> right? Right? It's this sort of lips puckered sort of thing. doesn't matter if it took some collagen and some Botox to make it happen and some sort of a photo editor to make it happen and to put that out there. Why? So you can have all of these long list of comments. Oh, you look dynamite. Oh, you look terrific. Wow, you look 29 years old. Wow, you look dynamite. Looking good. Terrific. Right? How much of that? How desperate are we to have these things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are other things, though. There are other things. I think even preachers and teachers can turn their preaching and teaching into a selfie. You know, preachers and teachers can turn their preaching and teaching into a selfie when they just sort of put it out there because they want to get affirmation afterwards. Now, it's always good to hear people have been touched by a sermon. You know what I mean? Uh, or, or, or learn something, and that somehow you were involved in the discipleship of that person. But it does show what goes on in the heart. But all of those things eventually burn out. You know, we talked about the last three weeks, all these magnificent things in the universe, if the universe were to continue on 
for like thousands and thousands of for a long, long time, millions of years, our sun would eventually burn out and that'd be the end of it. But there's something in this verse that we need to understand. He squandered his property, right? He began to be in need. A severe famine came. Ultimately, we're going to experience a famine in whatever thing it is that we've become so dependent on spending. So, in his, where he, wherever he was, he was counting on things to be there. We're eventually going to get a famine when it comes to selfies. We're going to eventually be, we'll be temporarily, satis- temporarily satisfied for a while on alcohol and drugs, pornography, but eventually you're going to experience a famine. Not because those things go away. There'll be plenty of alcohol. There'll be plenty of porn. There'll be plenty of everything. But you're going to experience a famine. Because no matter how much you drink, you're still going to be thirsty. No matter how much you smoke, you won't be able to get high enough. No matter how much porn you look at, you're never going to satisfy the sexuality that God gave you with. Eventually you're going to experience famine and need. Okay? Because... Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the hearts of man. But such, in such a way that we can't, we can't get at it. It's certainly left to ourselves. God has made us so that we are completely dissatisfied with anything but Himself. And I think Jesus has this in mind, certainly. I, think, I don't think He's just giving facts about the fact that He spent everything. By now, the Jews ought to see they've exhausted everything. They're ready for the Messiah. The Old Covenant has fulfilled its purposes. It's supposed, you're supposed to be ready for the Messiah now. Okay, you're supposed to recognize me when I'm here. So I think there's that going on. But most importantly, I think, for us to understand and to relate to, because I have experienced famine in all those areas I talked about, alcohol, drugs, pornography, money, you name it. I've, I've, I've experienced what I would consider wealth in all those. If you want to stay with the image of drinking a lot, partying a lot, and doing all those things the Scripture says we're now ashamed of, and also to experience just the parched wasteland even though you're right in the midst of it. Okay? I think that could be true for anything. It could be true for your for your selfies. It could be true for uh, you know anyone that's in a weightlifting. You've got body image you have to be concerned about if you're a weightlifter, right? Men can get just as concerned about their body image as women. Don't let them fool you. We just don't... Society doesn't press us as hard. We don't have to wear makeup. I was looking online the other day just this little thing I was looking at Fox News and they have these little side stories, you know? Celebrities without makeup, right? And you see, these, they get these ghastly photos of these four women. At the worst time, you could get a photo of them. They got no makeup on. They're just they're sneaking out from the gym, hoping to get down to the market to get a water. And somebody takes a picture of them looking, you know, a little roughed up. But it's always... And then it shows them with the makeup and they're stunning and beautiful. And you think to yourself, wow, some of these women without their makeup, woof! You know? But men never get that, Right? But guys get body image in the same way if we if we would admit it. You know, we want to look good. We want people to think we look good. So women just have it worse in that arena because they do. I mean, you guys, uh, you you ladies, you have it worse. Um, there's more expectations of you to look a certain way, to feel a certain way. You know what I'm saying? So and Jesus knows that, by the way. If society doesn't, yeah, Jesus knows that. You've exposed my besetting sin, brother. Have I? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Body image. Yeah. <laughs> it's not everybody's. Round is a shape. <laughs> well, just because you haven't been cursed with an Adonis body, you know what I'm saying? But we, there, there are areas that we can all... And I bet you, I bet you, I bet you, if you ask someone, and I, I keep on looking over there because I know that you're into exercise, uh, and I know that also you probably in the circles you've been in, you've seen men that you've got to say these guys are self-love, self-love, you know, body image, steroids, these things. But there's a famine coming. No matter how much of it we have, there's a famine coming. And by the way, I'm not saying you have that because you seem like a reasonable guy to me. But it it would be, but it would be something you would have to be dangerous for. That's a culture. There's a culture to it. There's a whole. Am I right? There's a whole culture of bodybuilding, is there not? There's a whole culture of exercise, almost a cult of exercise. Scripture says, uh, in the King James, it says, uh, physical exercise verily profiteth little. All right. So there's a little advantage to be had in physical exercise, but nothing like spiritual exercise. Okay. And so Scripture talks about the inner adornment of a woman. This has always been an issue. The women have always been under the gun with this kind of thing. So, all right. So we so we have a common understanding. We can we can relate to things. We can see ourselves in this young man, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, 
Okay. <clears throat> Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. In verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, at this point, the Pharisees are going to be like, you know, ultimately disgusted. This idiot is working with... This, this kid is working with pigs. I mean, what, what's the problem with that, first of all? Somebody here, in, in the, somebody here that's ever paid attention to anything Seth has ever said, tell me something about the problem with what Jews thought of... What's, that, what's, the, what's, what's the, the whole problem with pigs? They're yeah, they're they're like the most unclean animal, right? I mean, it's disgusting, right? And this is why, this is why, um, if you read Galatians, Paul had to rebuke Peter at one time because Peter's sitting there, as I've said before, pounding down Fenway Franks for all the Gentiles, <laughs> and the Jews show up from Judea, and all of a sudden, Peter runs from the Gentiles, and he goes over and starts eating some flat, tasteless matzo bread with the Jews, right? <laughs> why? Because he didn't want to be seen. Why? Because it was this sort of peer pressure. Peter. Peter who walked on water a little bit. Peter who confessed that God is, you know, that, that Jesus is the Christ. Peter. Even now, even all this time afterwards, when Paul goes and he's, and he's addressing, and he's addressing, and he's writing this letter, even after all that time, after having gotten over the fact that he denied Christ at one point, after all this has happened, he saw the sheep come down with all the animals. He heard God say, Peter, take, kill, and eat. No, Lord, I would never touch an unclean thing. Peter, take, kill, and eat. Three times. And he finally came to realize that the Gentiles are every much as part of the kingdom of God as Jews. Even still, he runs when the Jews show up because he doesn't want to be seen having cable food fellowship with the Gentiles. So we can understand just how deeply embedded in him this is because things stay with us. Right? I call them sin scars. We all have sin scars. Right? We all have sin scars. We may not be have the open cuts and sores anymore, but we all have, even as new creations in Christ, we still have sin scars. And those are some of the thoughts and ideas and patterns of behavior that still come up out of nowhere. It's the random lustful thought. It's the impulse to lie. It's the impulse to steal, to criticize, to put down, to judge. We all got them. But we also have a great covering. As Martin Luther said, right? We are snow-covered dunghills. I know you like that one, Todd. I don't this way with you. So, why does Jesus have to do this? Why does he have to paint such a picture to the Pharisees? I, I, I get the sense at this point that the Pharisees would almost expect that Jesus would sort of... Yeah, Seth. I'm just wondering, is there also possibly an element of probing at their... Their, whether or not they have any mercy towards this young Yeah, man. definitely. Yeah, I think so. Seeing their heart. Because like, they're, they're probably sitting there saying, this is what he deserves. Mm-hmm. Yes, he should get this. Mm-hmm. Pig's great. Yeah, definitely. This man deserves nothing else. Right. But maybe it's such a stark picture that he's been probing at the depth of their he, hatred towards sinners. Yeah, he's setting them up for a big surprise. He's setting them up to understand things about God that they haven't even begun to consider. Because the image that we're going to get of God in this parable is one of the most powerful images given the cultural understanding of what's going on that they could possibly get. And they did not capture it from their Old Testament understanding, though it was certainly there. And, and I think, you know, I'll offer some Old Testament to, to show that. But to just show that you can take certain things in the faith. You can take certain things in revealed Scripture and take deprive them of their context, which is what Pharisees did, and run with them. And make yourself a special people based on something that doesn't make you special. Yes, it was wonderful that God gave his law, the revelation of himself. One guy called the law the transcript of God's character. He gave that to a people. Not for anything they did. Just because God chose them. Out of his own complete freeness to do. And he's going to give them a big surprise, I think. They never would expect the things that, that follow up in this parable. Uh, verse 17 and this is um, we'll start off here we'll we'll get to this point verse 17 but when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish with hunger Hmm. What is sort of the common sense of what's going on here? What have you heard about this in the past? What would you say is going on? What has happened in this young man's life, do you think? 
What do people usually read that's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is where I think, uh, again, just, and again, this isn't my own, this is who studied and things like that. Um, this is where I think the modern understanding of the parable goes completely askew because I don't think this man is repenting at all. I don't think there's even the hint of repentance here. Um, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but, but there seems to be nothing at all. Let me, let me quote you from uh, Ken Bailey. Now, I've mentioned him before. Um, this was actually from an article he had written in Christianity Today, maybe 2008. But he lived in the Middle East for 50 years or so. So certainly was familiar with its culture and history. And uh, this is what he had to say about this. He said, Perhaps the most theologically damaging traditional understanding of this parable is in the popular perception of the phrase, He came to himself. This has long been interpreted as meaning he repented. The reading of this text dulls its cutting edge and breaks up the theological unity of the chapter. The good shepherd must traverse the wilderness to find his sheep. He does not return to the village and wait for the sheep to wander home and bleat at the door of the sheepfold. The good woman lights a lamp and searches diligently to find the lost coin. She does not resume her chores expecting the coin to flip itself out of a crack in the floor and land on the kitchen table. This is why I said the first two parables are critical, those short ones, to understanding this one. Because it's so commonly taught that at this point, the young man repented. And this is not repentance yet. It's coming. I believe repentance is coming. And we'll talk about how that's so. But but what is he saying here? Okay, and and by the way, what he says is the Arabic versions of Scripture, some of the older Arabic versions, usually translate this like, this thing says he came to himself that he got smart or he took an interest in himself, or he thought to himself. So I think what he thought here was hunger was setting in, doing its thing, he's wasted his living, he's got nothing left, and he says, what am I, nuts? My, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. It seems to me if there was repentance going to happen, that shows up first. Not, i got to take care of my hunger. Not everyone, I know how, and there's and so many words saying, I know what I can do to get food. Right? I don't see... I, I don't see a trace of, of repentance here. And I'll be very honest with you, this parable always troubled me because it seems like to me there's contradictions in it. And I could never put my finger on why until I, again, got some help just from additional study that this, is, this young man has certainly not repented. This is what a lot of people are like when they come to the end of themselves. They, 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 they get fast and loose and they try to figure out how do I get out of the jam I'm in. All right? If you're, if you're a recovered alcoholic, a drug addict or whatever, you know exactly what this is like. You're trying to find a way to get out of the trouble you just got in. The jam you've gotten yourself in. I know what I'll do. I'll do thus and such. I'll get back on my feet again. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. Um, it seems more concerned with his hunger. And it seems to me like this is more of a scheme. Brother, what I'm saying in this part here is this verse where he says, but when he came to himself, and I talked about how in the West we've so often thought of this as he came to repentance, but I don't think this has anything to do with repentance. I think this is a scheme he's cooking up to get himself out of a pretty bad jam that he's in. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he he's at rock bottom but doesn't know it yet. Okay, he's sort of at rock bottom but doesn't know it yet. He's run out of money. He's run out of food. He's run out of a place to stay. He can't even eat with the pigs. Yes. I I took that always as being very self-centered. Yes. You know. Okay. I'm at my rock bottom. Yep. Um, now what am I going to do? Yep. Oh, Daddy's going to take care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll go and hire myself out. I'll go to my father, okay, uh, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So in that, it almost sounds a little bit like there's repentance. I think that's why people have gone to that. But let's 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 close this because we'll pick this up again next week. But uh, we do want to stop at about 25 after, so people can get upstairs and. and People get tucked in, but turn to Exodus chapter 10. And let's see if there's anything here that might help us to understand that what we're seeing here is not necessarily repentance. Exodus chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. So God has whacked Egypt with its eighth plague at this point. Okay? And I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. 
When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen nor will ever be seen again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all of the fruit and all of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant, in all the field of all of Egypt. Nothing to eat. And Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So I I think there's plenty of reasons to think that even the Pharisees would be familiar with this kind of a thing. Because again, Jesus is trying to I think Jesus' point is to make the Pharisees see this young man in as bad a light as they can possibly see. And I think it's very obvious here that this young man has not repented at all. Yet, he's going to, because of what he says and does. Yes. Well, Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses yep. as still an unsaved pagan king yep. who even prophesied after the fact yep. and still remained unsaved. Yep, absolutely. So he came to his senses again in the terms of, you know, sort of, what can I do to get out of this jam? I'll go back and tell my father, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven take me on as one of your hired servants because if he did that then he'd be able to I'll, I'll fuller, fully, more fully explain next week because I just don't want to get into it now because it wouldn't make sense it wouldn't be fair to um, but again he's trying to make Jesus make the young man look increasingly wicked he, uh, it, it may even be that the young man thought if he, if he restored everything to his father he could come back into the community we'll talk a little bit next week about how, you know, what the community does with young men like this, how despised he would be if he came back, which will again further help us understand why the father did what he did. Mm-hmm. But it's very important that we realize that what's happening here is not someone just sort of coming to their sentences. In fact, um, I don't know if I have this in my notes. I don't know if I want to get to it or not yet. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it next week because, again, I don't want to get into it too much. But I do think that that's very telling of us what happened in the plague against uh, Moses. And, and again, let's face it, God is, has the ability to use whatever thing that we have, completely ruin it, bring it to nothing, so that the thing we are so dependent on becomes our greatest source of deprivation. And the thing that takes, the thing that we were getting the most from, we come to realize, has also been taking the most away from us. Because, again, as I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, it's not that we've tried God and been dissatisfied, we've tried everything else. No, we haven't been, we haven't tried God we haven't gone that way. Um, so we'll, we'll, pick up, we'll pick up there next week. Um, give some thought to that this week and, and, and read into, now sort of knowing what might have sounded a little bit different to you, read into the rest of the parable and see if it doesn't begin to connect the dots, the dots in ways that it, uh, that it didn't before. And, uh, and so let's be done. And uh, Yes, Harrison. Hi, Harrison. Oh, we're in the par- uh, parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Yeah. And the point that I was just making is that in verse 17, what we do not see is repentance. This does not looks like repentance on the surface, but isn't. And we'll pick up there next week. So, Brother Randy, would you pray for us? We're out of here.